This is Michelle. And I am Maddie. And this is Unsolved South, where we talk about mysteries, strange disappearances, and unsolved cases from the southern USA. Hi, welcome back to Unsolved South. Hope everybody had a great week. We're your hosts, Michelle and... Maddie. So... You got anything you need to say? Yeah, turn off that air conditioner so it's not blowing in our face. You turn it off. Okay. Look it up. <laughs> Do we need to restart? Uh, nah. This will be funny for people to listen to. It's off. Okay, there it goes. Get Texas again. Okay. It's not like a media. Okay. So, so now that we've wasted your time, let's get started. <laughs> okay. So, the story I have for you today might seem familiar, especially if you live in the southeast, but just hang with me because I'm pretty confident I'll give you some information that you've not heard before. Um, this story comes from one of my favorite places, the Great Smoky Mountains. Ooh, I love the Great Smoky Mountains. Me too. So, it is going to be a touch name and date heavy. Um, I'm going to try to simplify it as much as possible. Um, especially because there are like three Bobs in this story. Three Roberts in this story. <laughs> and so, I'm just going to not call them all Robert. I'm going to like, I'll change her name slightly, but keep it accurate. Got all it, right? got it. Uh, another thing I want to mention is, because I have heard this before, I am going to pronounce the Appalachian Trail. And half the time I'm going to say Appalachian, and half the time I'm going to say Appalachian. And don't come at me because just assume I'm Southern and whatever you think I should be saying is what I'm saying, but you just can't understand it because I have a slight accent. So just, just assume that. One. Just assume that. <laughs> Don't come at me trying to correct my pronunciation because I'm going to correct it myself probably five, ten times during the episode. Every time I say it, I'll say it different. <laughs> <laughs> so, y'all just chill with that because, man, I have seen that where people come after podcasters for their pronunciation of that particular area. And people from there say it different ways. So, I don't understand why people are always trying to yep. correct it. But, uh... Like Talafero and Talifer. <laughs> <laughs> I had the biggest argument with, uh, I used to work in news, and some of the newscasters would be like, it's Talifer. And I'm like, it's Talifero. I'm from around there. It's Talifero. Okay, so interestingly enough, I think if you're from the county, they call it Talifer. But if you're from Wilkes County, it is definitely Talifero. <laughs> <laughs> Because I remember a hunter come in one time to the restaurant and was like, we're looking for uh, Tolliver County. And everybody in there looked at him like, where? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, like Tallifero. <laughs> Which I really do not think is correct. <laughs> Except for if you're in Wilkes County, then I feel like it's correct. Got it. Got so. it. Okay, off of that tangent. <laughs> um... We just gonna chalk up anything you think I mispronounced to my accent and just leave it be. 
I got a funny accent story, so if we got time, I'll tell you my funny accent story. <laughs> oh, yes. Otherwise, we're going to move on and get into the what had happened was. When 16-year-old Trini Gibson woke up that Friday morning, she looked out her window to check the weather. Her horticulture class had a field trip planned for that day. The exact destination was a secret, but she knew it would be outdoors. The weather was chilly and wet, and she was sure those plans would change, so she thought for sure when she threw on her jeans, her little blue blouse, and her light striped blue and white sweater, that that would be good enough protection from the elements because she was going to be just sitting in her classroom anyway. The date was October 8th, 1976, and Teresa Lynn Gibson, known to everyone as Trini, was a sophomore at Bear Den High School in her hometown of Knoxville, Tennessee. She was well-behaved, well-liked, a straight-A student. She had a job at the local mall, and by all accounts, her future looked bright. Her mother, Hope, drove her to school that morning. While saying their goodbyes, another student called out to Trini that the field trip was still on. Trini left her books and purse in her mother's car, grabbed her sack lunch, and headed for the school. It wasn't until all 40 to 45 students were seated on the bus that their teacher, Wayne Dunlop, finally told them where they were going, to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. If you've never been to the Smoky Mountains Park, it's 800 square miles of wilderness surrounded by 1.6 million acres of U.S. Forest Service land. It straddles the border of North Carolina and Tennessee. It has three major entrances, and those are located in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, Townsend, Tennessee, and Cherokee, North Carolina. All of those are beautiful places, by the way, if you've not been. And Townsend oh, yes. has an amazing cave system that you can tour. Absolutely gorgeous. It is also the most visited national park in the entire country. It has upwards of 11 million visitors each year, which is roughly triple that of Yellowstone or Yosemite. Oh, wow. It is incredibly beautiful and incredibly dense. Do you have a question? You were looking like you had something to say. No. no you just um, look like that. Dexter was breathing really heavy, and I was trying to make him shut his mouth. Okay. <laughs> well, hopefully nobody else can hear Dexter and his breath. <laughs> Before allowing the students off the bus, Mr. Dunlop gave them instructions. He told them to split up into smaller groups based on their walking speed. They were to hike to Andrews Hall, then to Clingman's Dome, they were to observe the nature, but do not disturb the nature. And then finally, they were to meet back at the bus in the Clingman Stone parking lot. In case you've never been, let me kind of explain the trails. The parking lot is sort of a central area, and a lot of the trails start in the parking lot. Right. Not just to Andrews Bald and Clingman's Dome, but there are also trails that go off and the Appalachian Trail comes through there too. To get to Andrews Bald, you would actually take Forney Creek Trail, mm -hmm. and then it would wire off and 
go its own direction and then you would take the trail to Andrews Bald. The Clingman's Dome Trail intersects with the Forney Ridge Trail, right with the Forney Creek Trail. There's also Forney Ridge Trail there. But it intersects with the Forney Creek Trail close to the beginning. And then later it intersects with the Appalachian Trail. Gotcha. Okay, so all of these trails kind of start at the parking lot and then go off in their different directions. Trini spent most of her day with Robert Simpson. He was a friend of her older brothers who had graduated the year before, but Robert was still in school and he, he and Trini got along pretty good. They walked, they talked. Um, he even loaned her his jacket. They stopped and ate lunch at the base of Clingman Stone Tower. And Trini said she was ready to go back to the bus, but Robert wanted to hang out at the dome a little longer, so she went ahead without him. At the time, I don't know if that was a paved trail. I know it is now, but I believe actually at the time that was also a paved trail um, from the dome tower to the parking lot Yeah, was paved. It is now. I don't know if it was then, but I believe it was. I gotcha. tried to look it up, but I, I couldn't find information on when it got paved. But um, from the story, it, it feels like it, it was a well-established trail. Right. Okay. She soon caught up with a girl named Bobby in her class, and together they caught up with two other classmates, Anita and Scott. Why was Bobby by herself? Just walking down the trail towards the bus. Everybody kind of split off in their own groups, and they went to Andrews Bald, and this is after they came back from Andrews Bald, then they went up to the tower. So, I guess just some people wanted to hang out, some people were stopping to eat their lunch. So, they just broke up in their groups or whatever. It, it wasn't really part of the story, but she had been walking alone, and Trini caught up with her, and then together they caught up with the other two. The four of them walked down the section of the Appalachian Trail. When they were almost to the parking lot, the three other students realized they had plenty of time to get back to the bus. They were not pressed for time. So they thought, let's hang out and rest and, you know, chit-chat or whatever. Let's don't rush back to the bus. But for some reason, Trini was not having it. And she was like, all right, y'all rest. I'm heading on back to the bus. So she keeps walking. And they watch her go down the path. Back at the bus, Mr. Dunlop is doing a head count as the students file back into the parking lot. Robert was the last one to come down the trail. That's when they realized that Trini wasn't back yet, and he asked Robert when he had last seen her. Robert said that he had last seen Trini up at the dome at the tower of the Clingman's Dome, and that he had seen some bear tracks, and so he wanted to hang out and kind of trace that bear for a little while and see if he could find the bear. And Trini was like, no, I'm gonna go on back to the bus. That was the last time Robert had seen her. Mr. Dunlap sent a male student down the trail towards Andrews Bald, and he hiked the trail to Clingman's Dome Tower to look for her. When they met back at the bus, they realized that neither had found her, and Mr. Dunlap called the Rangers. 
The rangers come, they interviewed the students that had talked to her. Anita told them that she had watched Trini walk back down the trail, but she had looked away when she looked back, Trini was gone. She felt like she should have still been able to see Trini, but there was a slight bend in the trail, so she wasn't sure. Right. When Bobby was interviewed, she said that she also had watched Trini continue down the trail, and at one point it looked like she had been over as if maybe to tie her shoe or maybe she was looking at something off the trail. And then it looked like she had left the trail off to the right. Hmm. The ranger suspected that maybe she had tried to cut across to cut off time getting back to the bus. But they went to the area that, that the kids had described and, and they knew exactly where it was because they were hanging out on a large rock off yeah. the side of the trail. So they knew exactly where it was. When the rangers went to investigate that area, thinking they could follow her footprints, see where she went, they decided that the trail was just too dense, not the trail, but off the trail, was too dense, too rough for her to have cut through to get back to the bus. But it didn't make sense for her to do that because it was so thick. The students were sent back to the school with the bus driver, and Mr. Dunlap stayed at the park until Trini's parents got there. Her parents, Robert and Hope, stayed at the ranger station most of the entire search. They very rarely left. The first night, the search was hampered because there was heavy fog and rain, but they did search overnight with about 20 rangers. The temperatures dropped to about 38 degrees that night, but Trini was dressed warmly and she had a good chance of survival. She had Robert's jacket still. On the ninth, one day missing, rescue squads from North Carolina and Tennessee showed up. Helicopters were called in and they were able to join the search as soon as the weather cleared. During that search, three cigarette butts and half a beer were found off the edge of Andrew's Bald Trail. Eight more butts of the same brand were found near Clingman's Dome Road. A call came into the ranger station to report a crying girl walking down one of the back roads. A search team had just been in the area shortly before the call came in and had not seen a girl and when they checked, nothing was found. The temperatures that night dropped into the mid-30s. On the 10th, two days missing, the dogs were finally able to come in. Bloodhounds and trail dogs, along with 300 searchers, went further into the wilderness, searching a 10-mile radius around the dome. Dog number one picked up her scent at Andrew's Bald and followed it down the trail towards Forney Creek. Dog number three picked up her scent on a different trail and followed it towards Forney Creek. The dogs met at the junction of these two trails. There were no visible signs of her. They questioned all the hikers that they passed. None of them had seen anything. About halfway between the creek and the dome, they found an abandoned campsite that had not had a fire. The rangers checked and there were no permits for anybody to camp at this site. The third dog followed her scent from the dome tower about a mile and a half down the trail and then lost her scent at Clingman's, Clingman's Dome Road. 
which is the road going into the parking lot. That is the spot where the cigarette butts were found. Hmm. The FBI was called in and began to help with the searches and the investigation. That night, the temperatures dropped into the low 30s. October 11th, on the third day missing, all the dogs hid at the same spots and followed the same paths as the previous day. These areas were heavily searched, but they were on down slopes with steep drop-offs and thick underbrush, so it was very difficult. The Asheville Citizen newspaper printed an article quoting Western North Carolina Rescue Squad leader David Bassard as saying, quote, let's face it, it was below freezing up there and there was 15 mile per hour winds which put it at about zero degrees. There was ice in the trees up there this morning and it's going on the third night, he said. If she was there, we would have found her, end quote. Man, that's harsh. It was. The article said that park officials believed the girl had found her way to the road and gotten a ride out of the area, that she joined a band of hikers on the Appalachian Trail, or that she was never lost to begin with, or maybe she's dead. Mr. and Ms. Gibson were understandably upset to read this in the paper. They didn't believe Trini would have run away. She left behind her ID and her bank book, which showed $1,000 in savings. They did believe that she had been taken, though. That she left that stuff on the bus? No, she left it at home. Oh, at home, okay. Remember, she left her purse in her mother's car when yeah. she found out that the field trip was going to continue. Right. So she left her purse in the car. But if she was going to run away, if she had planned to run away, wouldn't she have taken the money right. and her ID? So that was the parents' thinking. But they did believe she had been taken. In fact, they wondered if her disappearance could have anything to do with an incident that had happened a year before. Exactly a year before. Exactly to the day? Oh my goodness. In the early morning hours of October 11th, 1975, a classmate of Trini's, 16-year-old Kelvin Bowman, had tried to break into the house. Trini's mom, Hope Gibson, had heard a noise in the night. She grabbed her gun and went to investigate. She wound up shooting him in the leg and then calling the police and having him arrested. During court, he made several threats, not the least of which was that he was going to kill Trini when he got out. He was sentenced to a year in juvie, but was released and allowed back into the school in six months. So, did he, did they ever figure out why he tried to break in? Yeah, it, it, he apparently was stalking. Gotcha. And he he was trying to get in to get to her. Hope she was an independent woman. She didn't need no man. She grabbed up her gun <laughs> and went off to investigate. Robert traveled for work. Or her father, whose name also was Robert, Mr. Gibson, he traveled for work, so he may not have been home at the time. Gotcha. 
but uh, apparently she didn't need them, so she was all about it. Okay, moving on. They brought this incident up to authorities, and authorities looked into it. Bowman was not on the field trip. Robert Simpson, remember she borrowed his jacket. Right. And a few of the other students said that they did see a car following the bus when they left the school. The teacher, Mr. Dunlap, said that there was no way possible anybody was following the bus. Now, remember, he's the only chaperone on this trip other than the bus driver. Which is weird. It was not weird for Batman. It wasn't? It was not. And uh, Billy and I discussed this when I was researching this story because there was a lot of that about why were they having a secret field trip? <laughs> why was there only one chaperone? Things were different back then. And honestly, when I was a kid, I remember first grade, second, third grade, we would go on field trips and they literally, somebody's mom would volunteer to drive. We didn't even get a bus. Really? Somebody's mom would volunteer to drive and they would just dole her out five kids. And, send, and she was just responsible for those five kids. You never knew who your kid was riding with or whatever. I reckon nobody cared. Wow. So, if you volunteered to drive for the field trip, you show up, they give you your kid and whatever five kids wanted to ride with your kid. And then you were just responsible for them for the rest of the day. <laughs> so, that's how things were. Now, Billy went to a bigger school, so they did get to ride the um, bus. Yeah. But, um... It was basically the same thing. They they didn't really have chaperones. It was just the teachers. Gotcha. So, things were different back in the day. This is in the 70s. And this, remember, is back, you know, I was a kid when this happened. So, you know, this is back even before that. But, yeah, things were different. They would just give you out to anybody. Anybody that wanted to take you was welcome to you, I reckon. In any case, I'm not sure that Mr. Dunlap could have known for sure that nobody was following the bus. Yeah. I'm not saying that I believe necessarily there was somebody, but I don't know how he could say with certainty that nobody was. The principal of the high school said that as far as he could tell, Bowman was in class that day. As far as he could tell. As far as he could tell. Remember, we don't have cameras then. We, I mean. What about his teachers? Does this te Did his teacher see? Probably. Him? But, listen. Teachers are busy. And back then, you had 40 kids in a class. So, I don't know if you heard, but just this last year, there was a school in Alabama, two schools in Alabama. And the students just swap schools as their senior prank. Yeah. And they made it almost all the way through the day before anybody realized it. What? So the students from one school went to the other one. The seniors yeah. from that school went to this one. And they went through their classes. And they was almost all day long before anybody noticed. What? So, I'm just saying teachers are busy now. 
They was probably busier back then when they had 40 students to account for. But as far as they could tell, Bowman was in class. And remember, this was a secret field trip, so he would have had to follow them from the school Yeah, if it was him. Temps that night were below freezing. On October 12th, four days missing, the hopes of finding Trini alive have, dis have diminished. Searchers began to focus on roads, ditches, and drainage areas, and the dogs found no new traces of her. By this point, the story was being heavily circulated in the media, and tips were starting to roll in. A report came in to the local sheriff about a young girl and boy that had shown up in Bryson City looking to get married. The girl matched Trini's description, but she gave a different name. It wasn't her. A girl had been seen near Newfound Gap, scratched face, dazed look, wearing a brown corduroy jacket and jeans. It was not Trini. There was a sighting on River Road in Gatlinburg. This was not Trini. A woman called to say that she had seen Trini getting on an airplane in Newark, New Jersey with a heavy-set, much older man and that they had gotten off the plane in Nassau, Bahamas. Authorities did not believe this girl was Trini. But they didn't check. They probably did the investigating that they could. Gotcha. On October 13th, 1976, five days missing, Rangers were contacted by a psychic, Cecil Thompson, I'm sorry, Thomas, of Nashville, who had had a vision of Trini either alive or frozen in a sitting position, in a hollow, maybe a bear den or cave. It was a rocky area near the mouth of a creek, an area without much underbrush. Several old large trees were around. The psychic also saw a bunch of squirrels eating a ton of acorns on the ground near her, and he said the searchers were very close, but they needed to be more to the left of where they were right then. Searchers did attempt to find this area, but did not have any luck. There were reports of a homicide victim found in North Carolina. This was investigated and was not trendy. Authorities called all the hospitals within a reasonable range and none believed they currently had her or had been recently treating her. The North Carolina Highway Patrol got a call from a man in Charlotte. He said that he and his family had been in the park Saturday, which was the day after she went missing. A ranger had told them that they could see a waterfall by going up to tribal owned campground off a of Big Cove Road. He said they made the hike to the waterfall and on the way back down, he saw a quote, Indian male about 18 with a gun and two scared looking girls with him. What? The man was shown a picture of Trini, but he could not identify her as one of the girls. So what happened with them? <laughs> no idea. But there was some sketchy stuff to pop up during this investigation. So, uh, including what I'm about to just tell you. The Haywood County, North Carolina Sheriff got a call from one of the hospitals they had contacted earlier. 
After asking the staff, someone remembered treating a young girl Friday, the same day Trini went missing. She had come into the ER dazed with scratches and bruises in the company of four young males. Mm. When asked for her information, she originally gave her name as Rita K. Lanning, age 18, Father Fred, address in Canton, North Carolina. When later asked to verify her information, she gave her name as Rita K. Gibson, which was mm. Trini's last name. But all the other info was the same. The nurse thought she was, quote, just a bit upset and confused. What? I've never been so upset that I forgot my own last name. When the nurse asked for her phone number, she hesitated. One of the males interjected and said she probably didn't remember her phone number because they were from out of state. What? But remember, she gave a Canton, North Carolina address. Yeah. Also, I've never forgotten my phone number because I went out of state. Me neither. <laughs> so, in any case, she was treated and released. The police looked into it to see if it was Trini. They decided it was not. I don't know if they found the girl to see if she was safe. I hope so because that situation was super scary. Uh, for sure. October 14th, missing six days. A report came in that Sunday, the second day she was missing, a girl had walked into a Lexington, Tennessee burger shack hitchhiking. She approached a trucker and asked him to give her a ride out of state. He felt like something was off with her and he declined. And she got aggressive, insisting he give her a ride out of state. So, he called the sheriff, and she ran. The girl was, dread, was described as having dull blonde hair, and she was wearing different clothes than Trini when she was last seen. Um, it was probably not her, but it was not definitively ruled out. The searches started to wind down, as it became less of a rescue and more of a recovery, the helicopter stopped coming because there was nothing more for them to do. It was so thick, they could not see anything, and they just right. weren't really being helpful. At that point, they were really wasting gas, and that was pretty much it. The dogs had not been able to pick up any new trails, so they stopped coming out. Volunteers started coming out less and less because at this point, they're not trying to find a girl. They're sure that there's no way she survived. Right. November 1st, 24 days missing, the search was called off for winter. Anytime the weather was good and they had personnel available, they would still search sporadically, but nothing really organized. They agreed that the searches would start back the following year when the weather got a little more favorable. At some point during these searches, Mr. and Mrs. Gibson hired a private investigator to follow up on some possible leads that had popped up. One of these leads was when Trini's younger sister, Tina, told them that she had received a visit from Robert Smith. 
remember him? He was the kid that spent the day with her and loaned her the coat, the friend of the brothers. He showed up at the house early in the search when Mr. and Mrs. Gibson were at the park headquarters. And he told Tina the following. If Kevin Bowman has Trini, he will kill her. If he doesn't have her, I think she must have run off with some horny hitchhiker. What? Later, Mr. Gibson spotted Trini's comb in the on the dash of Robert's car. Trini was never without that comb, and so he confronted Robert. Robert's explanation was that she had asked him to hold it, and when he found it in his pocket, he had just t- tossed it up on the dash. Uh, side note, because I think... Um, Younger people may not realize this. And I saw a bunch of comments questioning why she would have her comb if she did not have her purse. Yeah. Back in the day, it was style to wear your comb hanging out of your pocket. Or if you had curly hair, you would just stick your hair pick in your hair and wear it like that. Gotcha. So... She probably did have the comb with her when she left because people wore it like an accessory. It wasn't like, oh, I may need to comb my hair. This was like a look at my comb kind of thing. Oh. So, as strange as that sounds, (laughs) saying it out loud. Chances are she probably carried it in the back pocket of her jeans. But it is possible that when she was bending over observing the nature that it was getting in her way or she didn't want to break it and she could have asked him to hold it yeah we don't really know because like i said they did spend a good chunk of the hike together so that is a possibility i don't find it to be that damning that he had the comb because his explanation did make sense As far as what he told the sister, that was weird. Now, you could chalk it up to just a teenage boy saying stupid things. I know that my sons have said stupid things. So, you can just chalk it up to that. But it was a very strange comment to make. For sure. So, okay. So, the search was scheduled to be picked back up on Monday, April 18th, 1977. She would have been 192 days missing at this point. The week before, Mr. Gibson's PI had caught wind that the search would be very limited in both area and the number of searchers allowed. From here on, I'm going to refer to most of the park employees and rangers as park services. Um, There were like five names. I don't think they add to the story, so I don't feel like we need to learn them. Gotcha. Um, It was pretty obvious that Park Services was working as one entity, that they were, um, they had each other's backs, and that's definitely where their loyalties were lying. So I don't really think it affects the story for us to know their names. Also, one of them was named Robert. So we don't need to know them. On April 7th, 1977, 12 days before the search was to begin back, Mr. Gibson reached out to Park Services to let them know 
that he had heard they would have a limited number of searches, searchers in a limited area. And if they did that, that he was going to contact the media. Park services basically told him that they would search when, where, and how they felt like. And his contact in the media didn't matter. But they said that his investigator that had told him that was misinformed. That that was not ever said. They did not say they were going to limit the number of searchers or limit the search area. Mr. Gibson also wanted to know why they were going to wait until the Monday to start when they could start on Saturday and there would be volunteers would be able to come out where they couldn't come out on a Monday. And Park Services said that that was spring break weekend and they wanted to avoid, avoid a circus-like atmosphere. Um, Mr. Gibson asked for a copy of the search plan so he could turn it over to his investigator. And he also asked for searchers to be included that were not normally associated with park services. He had contacted some rescue groups and search squads and they were willing to come help, but they had to have permission from park services. Right. Park services agreed to allowing the other searchers, but they had call reports. Every time they had a had any contact with anybody, they wrote a call report. Mm -hmm. And they noted on the call report that Mr. Gibson was insinuating that someone needed to come in and make sure they were doing their job correctly. Mm. You can kind of see yeah. that things are getting a little contentious between Park Services and the family. Mr. Gibson apparently had high connections. Uh, even saw it stated he was friends with Jimmy Carter. Uh, I don't know how true that was, but he was high-ranking in the military police. And there were governors and high-ranking people that were like, you need to give him what he's asking for. Right. Which I think may have got on Park Services nerves. No, for lack of a better term. I think it rubbed them the wrong way. Yeah. Um... But he was apparently very well connected. Also, just a little note, Kyle's Park Services said that the investigator was misinformed, but they're actually in the file is a, a memo three days before the call where they told Mr. Gibson that, that did outline the search plan and said that they were only gonna search near the trails and that they would allow no more than 25 searchers to be present. Mm, so they lied to him? So the investigator was not, in fact, misinformed. Right. On April 7th, a call report had a note at the bottom that Park Services had never committed more than 25 searchers to Mr. Gibson when they spoke to him. But they did tell him that they were not going to put in a limit. Yeah. So they're telling him, oh, we're not going to limit it. But then also saying, but I never said that we would do more than 25. Mm. So that that's how things are kind of going at this point. Right. The Park Services report is going to be linked with the show notes, with the sources for this episode. If you want to read it, do. 
Be forewarned, it is like 90 pages of chicken scratch and redundancy. But I read every single page for you. <laughs> but if you want to go in and look at it, it was actually pretty interesting to see the notes. A lot of it is handwritten, and some of it was hard to read. April 12th, seven days before the search was to pick back up, Mr. Gibson asked if helicopters would be used. Park Services said no, it would be an empty gesture. I agree with Park Services. I don't know that it would have helped anything. Right. It, it would have been an empty gesture, in my opinion also, because I don't believe there was anything to be seen. Mr. Gibson said that if Trini was found, he wanted an autopsy done. He believed that she had been abducted, murdered, and buried. Hmm. I need to make it clear that Mr. Gibson is in communication with Park Services almost daily. I just hit the highlights here, but he wanted to know every single thing they were doing and how they were doing it. Right. He was so very involved from the beginning. He got involved. He stayed involved. He was all over it. Cade, we're going to have to give you a credit on this episode if you don't shh. I just, I thought it was important to mention that, that he was not, it wasn't like he just popped up once in a while and was like, you know, oh, what are y'all doing now? It, right. This was a constant occurrence. I, it was just day. so much that I did not want to um, include all of it because some of it was just small stuff. Yeah. And it, it just would have been useless to include, but he was there. He was about it. On April 20th, three days before the new search, Mr. Gibson asked about search dogs being used. Park Services said there was only one dog in the entire country that was qualified to find a body after so long. That dog was in high demand, but they had already set up that if any new leads were found, that dog would come out immediately. Also mentioned in this call was a press release that was ready to go out. This particular Park Service employee, Bob Evanson, asked if Mr. Gibson wanted to look it over. Mr. Gibson says no, as long as it makes a point to say that they cannot be sure his daughter is not in the park. The next day, Mr. Gibson calls Evanson and he is angry. The newspaper printed that the rangers were positive she wasn't in the park, which was the only thing that he asked them not to say. Yeah. Evanson said he was misquoted. He does make a note on the call report that he had called the editor of the newspaper twice to have them retract that and correct his statements. Right. So I do believe he was misquoted because he really was trying to get in touch with this editor to make him take it back. But it just added to the tension between the family and park service. Right. On April 23rd, six days into the search, 
All searchers were pulled off to look for a 74-year-old man that had gone missing on the Blue Ridge Parkway a few days earlier. He's making it very hard to be serious about this. He's making it very hard to listen, too. Be quiet. In mid to late April, the state of Tennessee put up a $3,000 reward for information leading to her whereabouts. The U.S. Department of Interior also re was released a quote saying that even if you put a thousand searchers out for years, we could not be sure she is not in the park, which made Mr. Gibson feel better about the way things were being handled. Right. On April 15th, 1978, which is roughly a year and a half after Trini went missing, two bodies, both teenage girls, were found in shallow graves in the Cherokee National Forest. One body was believed to be that of Kathy Clowers. The other was believed to be that of an unnamed teen girl from Gastonia, North Carolina. A few days before, the police had arrested a man named Joe Shepard after the body of Roxanne Woodson was found buried in his mother's yard. He then told police where to look for the other bodies, both young women that he had last been seen with. For some reason, police believed that there could be two more bodies buried in the vicinity, but they didn't say why they believed that. They said they needed to remain tight-lipped as not to taint the jury pool. Hope Gibson called investigators in the case and asked them if he could have been involved in Trini's, in Trini's disappearance, but it doesn't seem like he was actually connected to, to her disappearance. So that had to be devastating because I'm sure you thought, well, this is it. What are the chances? Right. And then to find out it wasn't. In June of 1978... Our favorite stalker, Kevin Bowman, showed up at the home of a 19-year-old female acquaintance. He knocked on her door about 3 a.m. and asked her for a drink of water. What? Then he forced his way inside her home and raped her. He was charged with first-degree sexual assault but pled down to third-degree rape. If you're asking yourself how seriously they took these charges back then, let me answer that by saying he was released and given 30 days on a deadline to file an appeal. What? Just sitting free. I don't even know what to say. In 1989, Mr. and Ms. Gibson gave an interview to the Mountain Press talking about how they were trying to get Trini's case onto Unsolved Mysteries and how they suspected foul play from the very beginning. I could not find her case ever featured with Unsolved Mysteries. Also in 1989, before his execution, Ted Bundy was questioned about his involvement in Trini's disappearance. He said he was not involved. Between the 70s and the 2000s, there was a slew of remains that were tested against Trini's dental records, mostly up and down the eastern half of the U.S. All were confirmed not to be a match 
and Trini's case remains unsolved. Theories. Trini got lost, couldn't find her way back. I don't know, because it was a pretty clear path to get back, and then we're almost to the bus. True, but several trails do intersect in that area, and she could have gotten turned around and took the wrong one. Yeah. It does happen more than you would think. Right. If that is the case, where is her body? Right, because by then, they would have found it. Unless she left the trail, you know, that night because she was scared. Maybe. Or it was dark and she couldn't yeah. see. And so she was like, this trail's getting me nowhere. I'm going this way. Right. But still, but most I don't like of it. those trails were well used. Yeah. And October is leaf peeping season. Right. So I imagine that there was, uh, it was pretty high traffic. So it seems yeah. odd to me that if she took any of the trails, she would not have run into somebody. Right. Um, Another theory is that Trini slipped off the side of the trail. And there are some really steep areas next to this trail. She could have slipped down and went through the underbrush and gotten hurt or got knocked out. Yeah. Or worse. If she had gone in the underbrush, there is a good chance that they not would not have been able to find her. Right. That makes more sense to me. Uh, if she was attacked by an animal. There was a bear. There are bears in the area, but there was no blood and no sign was found of an animal attack. But then again, the underbrush is thick, even in the fall. Right. So, but wouldn't somebody have heard her scream? Remember, yes. she disappeared with people behind her and in front of her. Right. So, there were people around. Would she have had time to scream if an animal had attacked her? Yeah. Did Robert Smith do something to her? I don't think so. Okay, nobody could corroborate his bear tracking story. He was alone. He was the last one to come down the trail to get on the bus. He did seem sus when he visited Tina and he did have the call. True, but where the other kids that were with her last didn't see him. Right, and they did see her after she left him at the tower. Right. Is it possible? That when she bent over on the trail, she was doing um, observations of the plants and saw something. She left the trail to retrieve, did not realize that maybe the ground wasn't stable there. This off track, but one time we were pulling a um, trailer back and something happened with it. And we pulled off, we was in the mountains in Georgia, mm -hmm. and we pulled off... And it looked like flat grass. And when I hopped out of the truck, I hopped with both feet instead of stepping down. I hopped out. And when I did, there was no ground up under me. And I slid for about 10 foot down that hill. And it looked like solid grass. Yeah. And I slid like 10 foot down that hill. 
So it is possible that you think it's solid and it is not. And right. she stepped off and slid. I still wonder wouldn't somebody have heard her yell. Right. Did Kelvin Bowman follow the bus and wait for Trini to be alone so he could grab her? That seems likely. His behavior in later years does show that he could be a dangerous person. Right. People knew that there would be a field trip. They just did not know where the field trip was going. Right. So he could have hopped in his little vehicle and followed that bus out of the parking lot. Right. However, a lot of those roads are two-lane roads. There's a, a decent amount of traffic. He'd had to follow from a safe distance so he wouldn't lose the bus. But I still think it would have been pretty easy because... The teacher would not have been looking for him. No. And he had other stuff going on, I'm sure. The bus driver's driving the bus. Other students said there was a car following. I don't know if they could not identify his car or he did not have a car. It could have been a car he borrowed. Yeah. I don't know. But I do think that is a possible I think so, too. Another thing is just some random stranger was hanging out because they did find the beer and the cigarette butts. If you have eight cigarette butts in one spot, then you're probably working on somebody or something. And you're just standing off the trail smoking eight cigarettes? Did he smoke? I do not know. I do not know. But also, he could have had help. True. So, to keep her quiet. True. Now, I don't know if it was him. I'm just saying it's a theory. Yeah. So, there's one theory, last thing that is kind of connected to this story. On September 25th of 2018, so that's fairly recent, 52-year-old Mitzi Sue Clements was hiking with her adult daughter from Andrews Bog up Thorny Ridge Trail towards the Clingman Stone parking lot. Her daughter was going to continue up to Clingman Stone Tower while Mitzi rested on the trail, and then they would meet back up at the parking lot. When Mitzi wasn't at the car when the daughter finished her hike, she was immediately concerned. Her daughter immediately called Rangers, and a search was started. Mitzi Sue Clement's body was found eight days later in terrain so thick and rugged she had to be extracted by a helicopter. It's believed that she simply took a wrong turn off the trail, got lost, and died of hypothermia. This was the same area where Trini disappeared almost 42 years earlier. If you have any information regarding this case, you can contact the Great Smoky Mountains National Park Rangers at 865-436-1230. And we're going to come back to the Smokies a few more times. Um, there's a lot there and some interesting stories. But I don't want to do them all right after, so we'll come back later. That's all I've got this week. Do you have anything to say? Well, you had that um, that story you said if we have time. Let's go ahead and do that. Okay, so um, I need you to say this word. Let me type it out for you. Okay. Because if I say it, then, uh, then y'all will all hear it and the story won't be funny. <laughs> okay? Okay. All right. 
So, um, a little while back, first off, I got six kids. Three of these kids got pretty heavy accents, and three of them do not. I blame their father. He's from Atlanta. I don't think that's really even the South. So, I blame them. <laughs> blame him for that. In any case, I had made dinner, and I had made dinner, and Melanie come in, and she was like, Hey, Mama, do you mind if I get any more of these? Llama beans. Okay, so she says that, and I look at her, and I'm like, do what? And she repeats, llama beans. And I said, why are you saying it like that? And I start laughing. I'm dying laughing. This heifer looks me in my eye. She goes, I don't know why you're laughing. That's exactly what you say. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I do not, Melanie. That is not what I said. I said llama beans. <laughs> and then as soon as I said it, I heard it. And then I was like, oh, my God. I got all these kids out here in the world, and I wonder what they're mispronouncing because I've got an accent, and they really think that that's what it's called. Roman noodles. That is what <laughs> Roman noodles. Roman noodles? <laughs> you know how old I was when I learned it wasn't Roman noodles? It's Raymond noodles? I was in college. And I was saying, y'all want some ramen noodles? I meant Raymond. What is ramen? It's Roman. <laughs> Roman noodles. Ooh, buddy. So I probably got y'all out here saying all kinds of weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> We're looking at y'all. Will done been halfway across the world. Ain't no telling what he's <laughs> And it's because I got a little bit of an accent. Cracker? I'm not. No, I am not. He's trying to get me to tell a story and it makes me angry. So I'm not going to do that. Which story? Come on, we got time. I right, and then I'm done with y'all. Okay. So, um, okay, so I got family from North Carolina. Listen, my, my family's like country, country, some of my family. So, my great-grandma, she um, would cook like raccoon and stuff. Right. And you eat it. Well, if you're going to cook a raccoon, you got to keep it in a cage for a little while. you got to feed it out because they're scavengers. And so, if you don't feed them out, they taste like roadkill smells. Oh, gross. Yeah. So, they're not that good anyway. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't best, sound good. Best case scenario, they're not that great. But you got to feed them out. And so, um, they keep them in a cage. You feed them fruit or vegetables or whatever and try to get all the roadkill smell out of them. So, anyway, we used to feed it crackers because raccoons like to wash their food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you give it a cracker and it wash it in its water bowl and then the cracker would dissolve. And it'd get really, um, like, confused. <laughs> <laughs> so, we would give it crackers so they'd wash it in the bowl and get real confused about it. And it was funny as could be to us. And then he's like, that's the most redneck story I've ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all should have gave it cotton candy. Cotton candy just laying around. Cotton candy was strictly for fairs when I was a kid. Fairs and circuses. That's where you got cotton candy. You didn't have a grandma that had a cotton candy machine like no, mine does. No. Hmm. That was hmm. not a thing. 
You know, my most country story is uh, I was in college at the time, <laughs> of course, and my friend Will, um, we were eating cornbread, and I was like, mm, this is Jiffy cornbread, and he's like, how do you know it's Jiffy? And I said, I, you don't, I can taste it. He's like, you know the cornbread by the taste? You know the brand of cornbread by the taste? And I said, yeah. <laughs> he's like, that's the country's thing I ever heard. <laughs> So now he tells all his new friends about his one friend that can tell cornbread from the taste of cornbread. (laughs) (sighs) All right. Well, that's all we got this week. If you like us, rate, review, share, tell your next door neighbor. Comment on on our Facebook and tell us your theories. Come on, people. Our Facebook is dry. Also, I want to say that you know how you threatened to call people out on the last episode? Yeah. So, uh, you said that Randy popped up and was like, I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen. Yeah. Well, uh, Kathy had popped up and was like, I went straight and listened to all of them because I ain't want y'all to call me out. Because <laughs> I said we was going to start naming names on the next episode. So. Well, Randy, um, she said that she was saving them all for her drive back. She lives in Brunswick. Right. And she was saving them all for the drive back to uh, North Augusta. Um, and she listened to them and she said the Whistler episode was a hot topic. So, <laughs> the Whistler episode, the whistle in that scared her dog Toby. And he was looking around in the car, and I was like, well, was it louder? Because, you know, he said um, that it was louder. Right. And she was like, yeah, I was pretty loud. So, I guess I got to get better on my editing skills, but this program doesn't allow you to move volumes, so. If I did, I would remove the people in the background that will not be quiet so that we can finish this last little bit of the podcast. Because some people will not be quiet even though I've shushed them like 67 times. So, in any case, if you like us, review us, please. And if you don't like us, just be quiet because you got to say something nicer. Just shh. Anyway, we'll see y'all next week. See you then. If you'd like to know more about the case we discussed or to see our sources, please visit our website at unsolvedsouthpodca.wixsite.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at unsolved underscore south and join our Facebook discussion group where we invite you to share your thoughts, your theories, and to ask questions. If you have any story suggestions, please email us at unsolvedsouthpodcast at gmail.com. We will see you back here every other week for another episode. I'm so excited.